You're listening to Dedication Point, a podcast and speaker series produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. Season three of Dedication Point is focused on prey species in the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. Although this national conservation area was established in large part to protect the area's uniquely dense population of raptors, these raptors couldn't survive without robust populations of prey species. Our first two episodes of this season focused on the Paiute ground squirrel and the black-tailed jackrabbit. This episode is about reptiles in the NCA. Unlike our first two episodes, which were each focused on one particular species, this episode is about a group of animals, some of which play the roles of both predator and prey in the NCA ecosystem. Christina Parker. I am an employee at U.S. Geological Survey, and I studied reptiles during my master's thesis while at Boise State University. How did you become interested in herpetology? I have always had an interest in herps and have always been fascinated by them, and I credit that to watching Steve Irwin as a kid and just really learning how uniquely beautiful these creatures are and how misunderstood they are. And I've always just been drawn toward them and never had this fear build up inside of me about snakes or reptiles. Um, And then my interactions with them growing up in a city in Southern California were pretty minimal. It was just kind of a western fence lizard scurrying across a rock here. There was a little ditch behind my elementary school that had frogs in it, that tadpoles that we watched grow up. Um, But I really became drew to the thought of being a herpetologist when I was a freshman in college. And the university I was attending, there was two professors there that studied herps and kind of opened that world to me. And as a career profession, I was like, oh, this is something I can do as a living? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Neat. (laughs) Um, And so that's where I really started becoming more drawn to the research of reptiles and amphibians. Can you define herpetology for us? Yeah, herpetology is a branch of zoology that studies reptiles and amphibians distribution, genetics, just everything about and reptiles and amphibians. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, what's special about this category of animals, right? Like, why do they deserve our attention? I would say that they deserve our attention because in each of the ecosystems that they natively reside in, they play such an integral role as both predator and prey. And also a lot of herps, especially amphibians, are indicator species. And so they help us with developing management plans, indicating certain environmental conditions, evaluate pollution and climate change. Unfortunately, they've been indicating to us that because of 
climate change, disease, human exploitation, they are in a decline. And so herps do need our help and need lots of research to make sure that we can sustain their populations and figure out what we need to do for them. So like when you say that herps are in decline, I mean, this is like a huge group of animals. I mean, are you saying like this group of animals is in more trouble than like other groups of animals? Globally, amphibians especially, are their biodiversity is in decline. I wouldn't say that it's more so than other species, but it is something that we're noticing and it's something that we need to keep in mind and figure out what we can do to help with the biodiversity. So when did you first come to this area? And I wonder if you have like a story or an anecdote about going out in the NCA for the first time. So I moved up to Idaho um, 17 years ago now when I was early teenager. And it wasn't until I came back to Boise State um, and really decided I was going to pursue a career in herpetology. Then I started looking for avenues and looking for people to get my foot in the door. And I came across um, David Pilliard at USGS and he studied herps and has been incorporated with other herpetologists in the area that have studied herps out on the NCA. And while working with him, he tagged me along to the Idaho Army National Guard, had a rattlesnake training day. And so that was the first day that I was able to go out onto the NCA with a bunch of other field technicians, other herpetologists, and we gathered some rattlesnakes up, had a great training on how to properly handle them, how to process them. And it was just a (laughs) fantastic day. Nice, nice. Awesome. What led you to a graduate program? Like, first of all, what led you to be like, this is something I want to do. I want to pursue a graduate degree. But then once you're there, like, how do you start thinking about what kind of project you want to do? So what I originally went to school was for um, pre-med. And so I was originally pre-med in biology. And then when I met the two herpetologists at the university I was going to and realized that I could switch gears and go into biology, ecology, herpetology, um, and they studied a lot on venom. Um, And so I started kind of researching that and got really into genetics and genetics of rattlesnake populations and kind of was decided from that point that I was like, I want to continue doing certain research and try to do some sort of genetic research with rattlesnakes. And that's kind of where that started blossoming. Um, And then as I was finishing up my undergrad, I wanted to gain experience in the field and lab and ended up working for the Idaho Army National Guard as a field tech. And they were doing um, some monitoring of snakes out on the NCA and 
they ended up having kind of in the pipeline already that they were going to do a revamp of reptile surveying out on the NCA. And with me being a field tech that season, already showing interest that I wanted to go to grad school and do some sort of reptile research, they then approached me and were like, hey, would you like to lead this project for us? <laughs> and I mean, it was a great offer. <laughs> so of course I took it. <laughs> um, and once I started learning about the exactly what they were wanting and the history behind that project's plan, I knew that it was going to be a really great fit. Um, and the project was to revamp reptile um, surveying that had been done on the NCA 20 years ago and 40 years ago. Okay. So it was kind of a continual research that had been conducted. I wanted to take a look at to see what habitat disturbances they might be facing. And out on the NCA, one of our main habitat disturbances is the treegrass fire cycle. Mm -hmm. And so that was one component of my thesis. And I was able to sneak in there a little bit, some genetic stuff as well, <laughs> and wanted to just establish a baseline of the genetic population of rattlesnakes that we have out on the NCA because it hadn't been investigated yet. I imagine you wanted you wanted to replicate certain aspects of the past study so they're comparable, but I imagine you also wanted to like maybe update survey techniques. Like, can you talk a little bit about that that process of figuring out how you were going to go about collecting the data? Yeah. Um, so we decided to survey at the same exact locations and use the same um, trap arrangement. So I incorporated 36 traps that were on the Orta Combat Training Center that had been surveyed um, in 2012 and in the early 1990s. And then I included 12 other traps that had been surveyed in the early 1970s and then in again in the 1990s, early 1990s. Okay. And the ones on the NCA, they had an X-figure configuration of the trap. So it's a drift fence with funnel traps attached on each end. And we configured that into an X shape and that replicated the previous studies. And then the other group of traps were just a single linear trap and had fence or funnel traps on each end and one in the center. And that was pretty much the only thing that we kept consistent from the previous studies was just trap location and trap configuration. We updated the vegetation surveying that we did for it and updated the interval or frequency of traps checked. What did you learn? So I looked at the effects of cheatgrass fire cycle on reptiles, um, occupancy, abundance, and richness. Mm -hmm. So through the occupancy results, we learned that the number of times burned at a location reduced the occupancy of 
snakes and lizards at that location. If an area had burned more than two or three times, then their occupancy more than likely will drop down to zero. So, I mean, that's pretty stark, but I mean, I imagine that's that wasn't surprising. No. Yeah. Um, the thing that was surprising was looking at the effects of cheatgrass on occupancy and seeing that cheatgrass affected different species in different ways. And so we would see, let's say with the tiger whiptail lizard, Mm -hmm. um, cheatgrass affected that one pretty significantly. Occupancy would decrease as cheatgrass increased. However, with a gopher snake, the cheatgrass didn't affect it as much and so it would take a longer amount of cheatgrass for the occupancy to then begin to decline. Um, one interesting thing that we found was with two lizard species, um, they actually increased as cheatgrass increased. <laughs> so when we're thinking about these big picture landscape changes out in the NCA, right, in the cheatgrass fire cycle, do you have a sense of what that means for the reptile population of the NCA? Not quite yet. That is something that we're have on our list of, okay. to do yeah, of yeah. Um, run some analysis to look at abundance and occupancy over time. And so going back to the previous survey efforts and seeing if there is a decline over time. Um, And one thing that we also want to be careful of is, or one thing that we're wanting to look at too, in seeing just interannual variability of reptiles. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the research that was done in 1990 by John Cassell, he found that there was more inter-year variability of species abundance than there was from 20 years prior when he did it. (laughs) Oh, I see. So there's more variability in the population size year to year now than there was 20 years ago? Possibly. (laughs) There might be, right? There might be, yeah. Gotcha, Mm -hmm. gotcha. Right, that's interesting because it's like that's something that other researchers have told me in regards to other wildlife populations in the (laughs) NCA, right? Like, ground squirrels, jackrabbits, right? Mm-hmm. It's like as the climate changes, we're seeing like larger like larger spikes and larger drops, right? Mm-hmm. Like more variability, yeah. less consistency year to year and population size. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine your hypothesis is that we've seen population declines, right? Like cuz mm-hmm. you've you just <laughs> talked about how you've shown that like, you know, uh populations decline mm-hmm. uh with wildfire and that you know we've we've seen large swaths of the nca burn and lots of areas burn multiple times right like is there can you like can you imagine any scenario where there isn't a population decline the only scenario i could imagine of not having a population decline would be for perhaps maybe those more generalist species right but i would still say that we are going to see a population decline in them, but maybe not as drastic as maybe some of our rare snake species. So the climate's changing. We've seen pretty dramatic changes, at least in the NCA over the last Mm -hmm. few decades. And I think 
a lot of those changes are attributable to climate change. But I think it's also fair to say that we've only seen the tip of the iceberg with regards to how much the climate will change in this area. It's hard for me and I think a lot of people to wrap their mind around like what I mean, what any specific area will look like in a few decades or more. I think for the NCA, it's a particularly tricky question. But I'm going to ask you anyways. (laughs) Um, Like, because when I start to think about these big picture questions, like, and and when I think about reptiles, like snakes and reptiles in particular, Mm -hmm. right? Like people associate this group of animals with desert ecosystems, Mm -hmm. right? And like, we have a desert ecosystem in the NCA, already but we also know that it's going to get hotter when we start to think about like what the nca and that landscape out there in the nca might look like in 20 30 40 50 years Mm -hmm. i think we have to think about other ecosystems and other organisms that are going to be like expanding into this area, mm-hmm. possibly from further south, like either through natural range expansion or through uh, like assisted migration, mm-hmm. right? And so is that something that you're thinking about? Yes, definitely. Um, by looking at previous data that's been collected and the just species count that they had for some of our rare snakes or um, even let's say our like North American racer, which is a pretty common snake to come across out on the NCA. Um, But the amount or the numbers abundance that were caught 40, 20 years ago are not matching what I caught a couple years ago. Right. And it will be interesting to see which species kind of take hold and stay and which ones will migrate and expand their range. Um, There are a lot of similar species in the Great Basin. And so what we're seeing as our reptile or herp diversity here we see a lot of the similar species further south in the great basin and so we probably would be still inhabiting similar species as they migrate northward um but it is definitely a concern for more of the like sagebrush lizard that are highly associated to sagebrush Mm -hmm. and how that's going to affect their populations and um, or other lizards that are bound to certain rock territories. And we're seeing in my data that doesn't necessarily matter if the habitat has converted from a lush sagebrush step to a cheatgrass sea, they're going to reside on their rock. They're going to stay in their territories. Right. <laughs> like, are there reptile species where you imagine like a very concerted effort is going to have to be made in order to like for that species to continue to survive i would say right now it's kind of hard to say because even though we have studied reptiles out on the nca periodically Mm -hmm. um 
we still don't really have a lot of great data on it. And first thing that comes to my mind are particularly the rare snakes that we have in Southwest Idaho. Mm -hmm. And knowing that their habitats are in peril and their populations possibly are in decline, but we just don't have enough data to say for sure. And those species particularly are, would be very difficult for even with human intervention to possibly be able to help and relocate if need be. Um, just because the nature of herps are very difficult to trap <laughs> and capture. <laughs> So let's talk about Great Basin rattlesnakes, like the, that rattlesnake component of your research. Um, what did you learn? So the genetic portion of my thesis, we looked at the population genetics of the reptile population on the NCA. And to do that, we also incorporated other populations of the Great Basin rattlesnake from Eastern Idaho and from um, down in Nevada from the Great Basin National Parks and saw that those three populations are different populations of Great Basin rattlesnake, um, but it's more closely related to the population in Nevada, which was interesting. Um, and by doing a structure analysis on just the NCA population, we are seeing some slight subpopulations occurring on the NCA, and that still needs to be a little bit more teased out and exactly what might be causing that subpopulation to be occurring and dive into a little bit deeper by hopefully expanding and collecting more samples to see if these are truly subpopulations within the region. How about like the, the population status? Like how are the, how are Great Basin rattlesnakes in the end? How are they doing? Difficult question because they appear to be doing very well. Um, if you know where to find them. Um, and unfortunately there are lots of people that know where to find rattlesnakes out on the NCA. And so rattlesnakes face a lot of persecution on top of having to deal with the natural stressors of living in a desert environment and having the cheek ass fire cycle is, um, something to deal with, um, so rattlesnakes deal with a lot of persecution as well. There was a study done um, in 2020 looking at the illegal killing of non-game on the NCA. Mm -hmm. And with that research, we saw that with recreational shooters, rattlesnakes and snakes are being targeted. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's something that I think it's important for us to maybe start looking at how this like, actually is impacting the population and get more 
quantifiable numbers instead of anecdotal and seeing like, oh, there's been a lot more shootings this year than last year kind of thing. Right, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I mean, I've experienced that in that I've like been around friends and there was a rattlesnake encounter and like the, the sort of gut reaction is like, we got to kill it. Like mm-hmm. it's dangerous. <laughs> it must be killed. And I'm like, wait, why, why do you have, you know, like, where does that reaction come from? You know yeah. what I mean? And like, as like my background as a wildlife biologist, it's like not there, but I, like, I think for the general public, there is a lack of awareness that mm-hmm. like it's, it is a non-game species and it's, you're, you're not allowed to just kill a rattlesnake if you see one, right? Like, uh, I, I imagine, I mean, I know, I know you've like done education and outreach uh, work in, in connection with, with rattlesnakes as well, right? Like, can, can you talk about those efforts and like what kind of responses you get from people like um, when you share this information? A lot of time... When I first share with people that I study reptiles and rattlesnakes specifically, probably 50-50% of the time, people are going to say, oh, this one time I came across a rattlesnake and I killed it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Don't do that again, please. (laughs) And then the other half of the people actually show interest and be like, oh, well, what can, like, what would be a good thing to do next time I see a rattlesnake? Or what are good tips if I'm out hiking in the foothills to make sure that I don't come across a rattlesnake? Um, And through just talking with people and doing trainings and stuff, I noticed that even people that immediately are like, oh, yes, you're just going to kill a snake after we have a rattlesnake in a tube and they've handled it and they can almost personalize with it a little bit more, Mm -hmm. they realize that it is a living creature and maybe isn't as dangerous as they thought it was, um, that they can be handled properly. If you leave them alone, they will leave you alone. Um, So it is neat to see that shift in people when I first, especially when we do outdoor trainings and handling, um, and it's especially hilarious with these military personnel that are big macho men that I'm not scared of anything. And as soon as there's a rattlesnake on the ground, they're (laughs) backing up and, (laughs) um, but once we get them tubed and show them that they're safe to handle, they start to change their tune a little bit and be like, oh, okay, like, if I take the right precautions, then I won't get bit. And so they are less scary now. When you're doing that outreach and education work, is there anything that you tell folks, like, if someone were to ask, like, what they could do to help, like, like maybe rattlesnakes or maybe just herps in general, um, like in the NCA or, or wherever, like folks are, are recreating? Are there any ideas or tips that you share with folks? The biggest way for people to help herps is to interact with them in 
a safe and cautious manner. Always first try to identify what it is before going and trying to pick it up. Um, Also totally cool to just leave the animal be and not pick them up. Um, But the best way for people to help herps is probably by contributing their observation to a citizen science database like iNaturalist. Um, There are herpetologists that use that iNaturalist data to either identify where they're going to go and start surveying for their research or even include that data into their research and analysis. And so having those citizen science data is really beneficial for herps. I told you that this season's about prey, right? And our first two episodes were about one specific species Mm -hmm. that is clearly falls into that category of like a prey species, right? But there's so many different species of herps out in the NCA and like a lot of them, you know, I mean like rattlesnakes, for example, like most people would think of them as a predator, but they're regularly taken by birds of prey, you know? (laughs) Um, So, I mean, any just like general like thoughts or comments about like how this category of animals kind of fits into the larger NCA ecosystem. Herps on the NCA have a great diversity. Um, There's eight lizards and eight snake species that reside on the NCA. And they all play a role as like predator and prey on the NCA. And so as certain species like the ground squirrels go under for the summer, then raptors can start picking up snakes and lizards and even badgers will prey on rattlesnakes and other snakes. Um, and we have also snake that eat lizards. And so even within the herp category, they're necessary for their own ecosystem cycle. Uh, maybe you can just talk a little bit about what you're doing now. So now I am currently working for U.S. Geological Survey in their Pacific Northwest Environmental DNA Lab. And in that lab, we are assessing invasives and endangered species through non-invasive methods. Um, And so we look at a variety of things of certain invasive aquatic species and streams, or I try and identify mussels, um, another really neat project that we work on is identifying pollinator populations by collecting flower samples. And I'm also still working on publishing my thesis and revamping all of my analysis that I did because in graduate school you have so much time to work on your data Mm -hmm. and once you graduate you're like oh i could have done this better or we can rerun these analysis doing this and so that's what i'm working on right now is just trying to refine things a little bit more so i can publish my thesis it it sounded like there was an interest in like Mm -hmm. establishing an annual or just like a regular survey protocol Mm -hmm. for reptiles in the nca like is that something you're involved with on the sidelines or like advocating for? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I 
first did my thesis, the guard initially were thinking about maybe doing a survey, reptile surveying effort like every five years or so. And so we kept the traps that were on the training area up and um, people at the guard and then also um, a couple other herpetologists in the area have been talking and we've been trying to get camera traps set up at these trap locations. And so using motion sensors to detect when something passes through and takes a photo Mm -hmm. or just doing some videos of the traps. And so that's where we're kind of aiming or trying to go towards now. Um, Still involved in that and also involved with the snake fungal disease effort though. So we've been swabbing out on the OCTC, the NCA, um, since 2018 for snake fungal disease. And, um, there was one detection of snake fungal disease on a gopher snake in 2018. And so that's kind of what's continued our surveying. But since then we haven't detected anymore. Hmm. So snake fungal disease, it's a fungus that will affect the skin of the snake and cause there to be lesions, cuts, abrasions that can then be infected um, and multiple cases could be fatal. And so snake fungal disease is an emerging pathogen that is predominantly in the East Coast of United States. And in 2018, there was a large effort done through the Department of Defense, um, Parks and Amphibian Reptile Research. Um, They wanted to see the full expansion of snake snake fungal disease across the United States. And so that's why we decided to swab here in the West. And at that time, it was the most furthest west detection of snake fungal disease. Mm -hmm. It's having a serious effect on east coast snake fungal or snake populations, um, specifically like the Massasauga rattlesnake and the timber rattlesnake that have already had declines in their populations because of climate change and urban developments and habitat loss and such and so it's just kind of another ding on them so snake fungal disease has really affected those populations before it started emerging in the united states there was some cases possibly of it on um captive species and so the actual origins of it are kind of unknown i think
That was our conversation with Christina Parker, former Boise State University graduate student and current employee of the Pacific Northwest Environmental DNA Laboratory, part of the USGS Forest and Rangeland Ecosystem Science Center. If you'd like to learn more about Christina's research, you can find relevant links on the show notes page for this episode on our website. Check out birdsofpreynca.partnership.org. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wild Lens Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme song is by Like a Rocket, and additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website for a full list of credits. <laughs>